You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4 while I take a couple of moments here to recuperate. Music just kind of gets in my soul and uh, it just kind of gets me going. So it's going to take me just a moment to come down here for a second. I love that old hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the, the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss or contempt on all my pride. Amen. All right, Ephesians chapter 4. We're continuing this morning on our verse-by-verse trek through the book of Ephesians on Sunday mornings. We've been doing this now for about four months, and we're about in the middle of the fourth chapter, and we've got the fifth and the sixth chapter yet in front of us, and folks, it just gets better and better. Now, I like the way that Glenn prayed a moment ago when he led us in the offertory prayer. He thanked the Lord for this great message that we were going to hear this morning. Did y'all hear that? I like a positive thinker. (laughs) I like a guy that's positive. That just really inspired me, Glenn, when I heard you pray uh, from the ground of of redemption and from uh, without even having heard it. You just trust that God's going to do something great this morning, and I appreciate that. And he always does when his word is read and when his word is preached. He can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick, and sometimes he has to do that uh, with us, with me included. And I pray this morning that whether I'm crooked or straight, that God's going to hit a straight lick in your heart and your life as we study the Word of God together. Ephesians chapter 4, in a few moments, we're going to read verses 7 through 16. Last week, we began a two-part message, and I told you then that if you didn't come today, you're only going to get half of the thing. You got the first half. But uh, we began a two-part message last week about the glorious church, what it means to be the church of the risen Lord Jesus, and what it means to be a glorious church. You know, in and through the church, Jesus is supposed to be glorified. Paul ended the third chapter with this verse, verse 21. He said, to him be glory in the church. In other words, the church is to glorify Jesus. And within the body of Christ, the Lord Jesus is to be lifted up and is to be glorified. So we are to be a glorious church. We are to glorify the Lord in the body of Christ. And I said, as we talked about that, what kind of church is it then that glorifies Christ? What kind of church is a glorious church? And we said that it is a church that is in unity. It is a church that is unified. And so beginning in in chapter 4, verse 3, Paul encourages these Ephesian Christians to be diligent, to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says that we ought to be working overtime. We ought to be doing everything we can to preserve the unity. As the glorious church, the church in which Jesus is to be glorified and is to be honored, we must be a unified church. We must be diligent to preserve That unity. And so we began last week in the first six verses of dealing with some things that cause us to be unified, some things that unify us, some things that we hold in common. And the first few verses there, Paul deals with the behavior of the glorified church, the behavior of the unified church. And he he talks about the fact that we are to walk in humility, in gentleness, in patience, and forbearance. That means to have a long fuse with the faults of those around you. 
And so that's the behavior of a unified church. And when a church gets split, when a church quits being unified, it's when there, some folks within the body begin to think they're big shots, you know? Quit ceasing to walk in, in humility. Paul says as we walk in, in this kind of behavior, then that will unify us. That's the quality of a unified church. And then we dealt with the beliefs of a glorious church. The seven foundational beliefs that Paul gives us there in those first verses that we cannot deviate from. There are some things that we can disagree on in Scripture, some interpretations. I mentioned the fact that it doesn't matter what your millennial view is as far as I'm concerned, as long as you know the Lord Jesus. I said all smart people are premillennialists, but if you're an amillennialist or a postmillennialist or panmillennialist, I can't even say that. <laughs> that means you just know it's all going to pan out in the end. That's fine with me. Don't make it a matter of fellowship. We don't have to agree on that. But these seven things that Paul mentions in these verses are foundational truths. They are doctrinal truths from which we cannot deviate and be unified in Christ Jesus. He said there's one body, the church, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, in all, through all, and for all. Those are the seven foundational truths around which we are unified. And so there are some things we hold in common that cause us to be unified. Those behavioral patterns, the way that we are to act toward one another, those beliefs, those foundational truths. But we are not only unified, folks, in what we hold in common, but we are also unified in our diversity. We are unified in our diversity. In other words, God made us all different. He didn't make us all alike. He made us different in order that he might make us one. Now that sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? God made us different in order that he might make us one, in order that we should be unified in the body of Christ. Now, in order to be unified, it does not necessarily mean to be the same. We talked about that. You don't have to be the same as me. I don't have to be the same as you. Praise God, we don't have to be alike in order to be unified. And in some ways, God has unified us in our diversity, and that's what we're going to deal with today, our unity that comes in diversity, and primarily that comes in the spiritual gifts. So let's read together. Verses 7 through 16. But to each one of us, grace was giving, given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean, except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things." And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, some as pastors, teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The glorious church is the church that is unified, and we are unified by those things in which we hold in common, those behavioral patterns, those foundational beliefs, but we are also unified in our diversity, and that's what Paul deals with in these verses of Scripture. I want you to notice, first of all, the gifts of the glorious church, the gifts of the glorious church. Now, I'm not going to do a whole lot with this because we've been studying for Sunday nights for about 
four or five months on the spiritual gifts on Sunday evening, and we dealt with much of this in that study. And I'm not going to take time to reiterate a whole lot of that this morning, but it is important that you recognize and understand that the church is to be unified in her diversity, and God does that through the gifts of the glorious church. In verse 7, Paul mentions two key words. The first word in verse 7 that is key is the word grace. The second word is the word gift. Now, the word grace in the original language is pronounced charis. It is the word from which we get charisma, or we get our word charismatic. It means literally a grace gift, a gift that is given by the grace of God. Charismatic gift means simply a grace gift. Now, I believe that the gifts that Paul is talking about in these verses here in Ephesians are none other than the charismatic gifts, the grace gifts of God that God has given his church for service. They are the gifts that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through, first four, verse, through chapter 14. They are the gifts that all of God's people have. We all have charismatic gifts. That means, folks, we are all charismatic. And you say, no, I'm not. I'm Baptist. No, you're not. You're charismatic. You are a charismatic if you are born again. If you have the Spirit of God living within you, then you have a spiritual gift. You have a grace gift, a charismatic gift. Now, our gifts are different. We are unified in our diversity. You see what the church is, and you're familiar with this metaphor that Paul uses in his letters several times. What the church is, is a body. The scripture says we are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are unified as a body. Now, we are one body, but we have different functions. What is a body? A body is a unit that is made up of several par separate parts, isn't it? It's a unified organism that is made up of separate parts. Each one of us, as a part of the body of Christ, have a different gift. We have a different function in the body. The hand has one function, right? It's not the same function that the foot has. The eyes have one function, not the same function that the ears have. The ears have a function, which is hearing, and that's not the same function as the arm has. Every part of the body has a different function. But when all of the body is working together, then the body is coordinated and able to do the work that God has given the body to do. Now, that's the way it is in the body of Christ, which is the church. He has given gifts, not all the same gifts, but he has given each one of us those spiritual gifts. And when we are all functioning with those spiritual gifts, those gifts that Christ has given, then we are working together in unity as a body. Now, you would think, just humanly thinking, that if God wanted real unity, he'd just make us all the same. We'd be like the Coneheads. You remember the Coneheads? <laughs> Some of you folks just gave yourself away. I heard about them. I've never watched that show, you know. <laughs> You remember the coneheads, they all looked alike. They all had big cones on their head. They were just all the same, just like clones. They ought to call them cloneheads, just all the same. And you would think, humanly speaking, that if God wanted us to be unified, that he'd just make us all the same, he'd make us look the same. That wouldn't be unity, though, if God had done that, because we wouldn't need each other, would we? If we all looked alike, if we were all made alike, if our gifts were all exactly the same, then we wouldn't have any need for one another. But you see what God in his wisdom has done? He's made us different. He's made us unified in our diversity. He's given us various gifts in order that we need each other. That means I need you. And you need me, whether you believe it or not. 
whether you think it's true or not, we all in the body of Jesus need one another. We are incomplete without one another. And so God has given us gifts. He has given his church gifts. We are unified in that diversity. They are different. He's given us different gifts in order that he might unify us as a body. Now I want you to know some things about these gifts that Paul talks about here in verse 7. First of all, notice the source of these gifts for the glorious church. Paul says, but to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. He says, grace was given. How was this grace given, this gift of Christ? He said it was given according to the measure of Christ, the source of the gift. Where does the gift come from? It comes from Jesus. It comes from God. What does it say? It's given according to the measure of Christ. In other words, he's the one that measures it out. He's the one that decides the gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, speaking of the spiritual gifts, Paul says that the Spirit of God gives the gifts as he desires. He distributes them to everyone in the church as he decides needs to be done. God is the giver. He is the source of the gift. In other words, you don't decide, folks. I don't care how bad you want a spiritual gift. You don't decide whether you get it or not. Now, you can pray till heaven opens up. And if God has not chosen in his wisdom to give you a particular spiritual gift, it is not going to be given. They are birthday gifts. They are given at the point of salvation. God distributes them sovereignly as he desires. He is the source of the spiritual gifts. Now, he has given them for the purpose of service and of ministry. He's given them for the purpose of service and of ministry. That means these gifts are not toys to be played with, but they are tools with which to serve him. They are not given for your enjoyment, but they are given for employment in ministry. Now, you ought to enjoy exercising your spiritual gift. I mean, I enjoy preaching. I believe that's the gift God has given me. I really have a good time with that, but God didn't give me this gift just so that I could have fun with it. God has given me the gift not for enjoyment, but for employment that I might serve him with that gift. You do not choose your spiritual gift. God sovereignly bestows the gifts as he sees fit. Second of all, Notice the scope of the spiritual gifts. Verse 7, Paul goes on, he says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. To each one of us, grace was given. In other words, every Christian, every Christian has spiritual gifts. Now, whether you utilize your spiritual gift or not is another matter. Some of you have not yet even discovered that spiritual gift because you're not really seeking to know what God has gifted you with. You're not walking in fellowship with the Spirit of God, and therefore you have not yet discovered it, so you cannot utilize it. You cannot begin to use that gift in ministry. But regardless of whether you have discovered that gift and are utilizing that gift does not change the fact that you are a gifted child of the King. God has gifted each one. Paul says to each one of us, was given the grace according to Christ's gift. There are no ungifted children in the family of God. That's really what the scripture teaches. A couple of weeks ago, I went out of town for about four days, and I am getting to where I just don't enjoy doing that if I can't take my family with me. I, we run our phone bill up while I'm gone. It just almost breaks us. Call two or three times a day. In fact, I just made the decision this last time. I'm just not going to do that anymore unless I just have to, unless it just necessitates that, that my family cannot go with me. I just don't like being away from them. But something I always do whenever I'm gone to preach or to lead a retreat like I was this past week is that I always bring Tiffany a gift, our two-and-a-half-year-old. 
She loves gifts. I mean, a two-and-a-half-year-old gets off on gifts. Everybody does, you know, but she really loves these gifts. So I called, and I told her, I said, Tiffy, I'm going to bring you a present. I'm going to bring you a gift when I come home. And uh, she gets all excited about that, and she dropped the phone and run around the house, you know, and, and talk about the gift. And Laura said that all she talked about for the next two or three days was not that Daddy was coming home, but that when Daddy got home, he was bringing a present, that he was bringing a gift. And so when I got home, I was all excited about giving her the gift, and I bought her a little T-shirt with a little bears, and I just thought, man, she's going to love this. A two-and-a-half-year-old little girl's going to love this little purple T-shirt that I got her and has Red River, because uh, that's where I was, Red River, New Mexico, on it. And we got in the house, and I pulled out my little t-shirt and I handed it to Tippy and I said, here, Tippy, here's your present. And she took the t-shirt and she kind of, she didn't know whether to laugh or cry or, or what to do. You know, t-shirts are not the big thing for two and a half year olds. Real presents for a two and a half year old is something you can ride or something you can eat, you know? I mean, t-shirt, that's okay, but is that all you got, you know? And then I remembered that in my coat pocket, I had a roll of lifesavers. And so I pulled those out and handed it to her. And boy, this big sparkle came in her eyes. And she thought, now this is a present. <laughs> you know, now this is a gift. This is what I want. This is what I like. And so she dropped the T-shirt. She went off and devoured her lifesavers. Well, the next afternoon, this was on Saturday, the next afternoon, Sunday afternoon, getting ready for church, all of a sudden, Tiffany decided that she wanted to wear that T-shirt. In fact, she decided that she was going to wear that T-shirt regardless of whether Mama and Daddy wanted her to wear that T-shirt or not. And so Tiffany went in there in her room, and she pulled out her T-shirt, and she began to march herself. Bob, you gonna, will you help Kathy get through there? <coughs> okay, she began to march herself back into the living room, and she announced that she was going to wear that T-shirt, and regardless of whatever we said, Tiffany was going to wear that T-shirt. And so she wore the T-shirt Sunday night, even though it didn't match the little suit that her mother had laid out for her to wear. And I want to tell you, folks, that blessed her daddy's heart. I mean, that really blessed her daddy's heart. Here was this, my little girl that wanted to wear my gift, my present, and anything that we said or did was not going to keep her from, from wearing that T-shirt. You know, I thought about that, how it must bless the heart of God when his children want to exercise their spiritual gifts that he's given, when his children want more than anything else in the world to serve him with the gift that he has given. But you know something? Regardless of whether I have one or two, and we've got one on the way, or ten little children. <laughs> My wife says, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> Regardless of whether I have one or ten, I would never think of coming home and not bringing a gift for every single one of them if I gave any of them a gift. You see, there are no ungifted children in the family of God. God does not just give a few of us spiritual gifts and negate the rest of us. God has gifted every single one of us. Every one of us is a gifted child, and he has given that gift in order that we might function in the body of Christ to serve him. So the source of the gifts is the Father himself. The, the scope of the gift is that all of us, to each one of us, has been given that gift. And I want you to notice thirdly, the sacrifice of that gift. The sacrifice of that gift. I'm not going to read these verses again, but in verses 8 through 10, Paul quotes an Old Testament psalm. He quotes Psalm 68. When you study Psalm 68, you'll discover that it really is a praise for, to God for his deliverance of his people. David is praying and he is praising the Lord for the fact that God has come to the aid of his king and his people and has delivered them. And then he says, when he, after he had delivered them, then the father ascended again to heaven. Now, he says that what he did when he delivered them was that when he ascended, that he led captive a host of captives. And the picture here that, that David is giving and that Paul is quoting is a picture of a conquering general. 
a conquering general after he had been on the battlefield and he would come back into the, into the home city, he would lead there before him a procession of all of the enemies that had been captured and he would make a public display of them. Now Paul takes that Old Testament psalm and he applies that to what Jesus has done. He says in effect that Jesus has come and has defeated the spiritual forces of darkness. He has led a great host of captives of those forces of the evil one and he has made a public display of them. And then Paul begins to think and it kind of pushes him on to another thought and he says, you know, the very fact that Christ has ascended into heaven necessitates that he must have descended. You know, the old adage, what goes up must come down. Well, that's really what Paul says. If Christ has ascended to heaven, then that necessitates a previous descent to someplace else. And so in verse 9, that's what he talks about. He talks about this descent of Christ and then the ascent of Christ. And there's been an awful lot of argument about what these verses mean. And I'm not going to try to answer it for you here today other than to say to me it seems that the evidence points to the descent of Christ simply referring to the coming of Jesus to earth to pay that sacrificial price for your sins and mine. To be our sacrifice. And you can argue with the theologians about that from now till the cows come home. And you're not going to come up with a better answer. I believe the evidence simply points to his descent to the lower parts of the earth. Refers to the fact that Jesus did what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2. Though he was in the very form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to. But emptied himself and took the form of a servant. And came to earth to die a servant's death. On the cross for you and for me. And so Jesus descended, he came, he died that sacrificial death, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father as the victorious, conquering Savior. And Paul says, then he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to his people. These are sacrificial gifts. We have them because of the result of the descent of Christ to be our sacrifice, because of the ascent of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. These are victorious gifts that are given because of the sacrifice of Christ. Now, in these gifts, folks, and we wrap it up here on the gifts, but in these gifts, the body is unified. The church is unified because we each have a function. We each depend upon one another in the body of the Lord Jesus. And therefore, we have unity in diversity. The glorious church. Notice the guides of the glorious church in verses 11 and 12. Not only has he given gifts, but he has given guides to his church. In verse 11, he lists four of the gifts. These are four things that he lifts in other places. Four of the gifts. It's interesting that Paul does not go into a long list of the spiritual gifts the way that he does in Romans and the way that he does in 1 Corinthians. He doesn't go into a long list of the spiritual gifts, but he singles out four of them, just four of them. And in this context, it seems to me that these are not only gifts, but they seem to be offices within the body of Christ, within the church. And many scholars would would separate them as a matter of fact from the spiritual gifts and I don't believe that you can do that I believe they are spiritual gifts but I believe that Paul singles them out here because they are intended to be offices as guides for the church God has given the church guides in order to unify her and to grow her up in Christ Jesus the first two that he mentions are the apostles and the prophets we spent a great deal of time on Sunday night studying this thing about the apostolic gift and the prophetic gift and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that but I We'll just say to you that when we studied that on Sunday evenings, I said that I believe that the apostolic gift, 
the gift of apostleship and the gift of prophecy as it was in its purest form, as the prophet was the mouthpiece of God, that he spoke direct revelation from God, and that was the classical sense of the classical prophet. He was a mouthpiece of God. God spoke through him and gave revelation to his people that the apostles and the prophets are no longer with us. Now you say, well, why is that? I say that they have passed away because the complete revelation of God has been given in Jesus Christ. The complete revelation of God has been given in His revealed, written Word. And until that time, the apostolic office was very necessary. The prophetic office was very necessary because God was speaking His revelation to His people through the apostles and through the prophets. And as a matter of fact, it is through those apostles and through those prophets that God ultimately gave us His revealed Word. But you see, God's not revealing any new revelation anymore. Hebrews chapter 1 says that in Jesus, God said it all. There's not any more to be said. He said a little bit to the prophets here, a little bit to the prophets there, a little bit to the prophets there. But in Jesus, he summed it all up. And we have all of the revelation of God that we're ever going to have in Jesus Christ and in his written word. Therefore, the need for the apostolic office and the prophetic office passed away. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, you don't build a foundation over. A foundation is laid once, and the church then, he says, is being built upon that foundation, and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. You see, God laid the foundation for the church through the apostles and the prophets. He gave his revelation through them. He has given us his full revelation in the written word of God, and therefore they are guides for the church in reality as we have now the full revelation of God. So he mentions, first of all, the apostles and the prophets. Second of all, he mentions the evangelist. Evangelist. What's an evangelist? Well, he's an itinerant preacher, someone who's not tied to one place, to one location. He moves from place to place, preaching the gospel. He is given to the church for the purpose of winning the lost and inspiring the people of God to be soul winners themselves. I believe in the ministry of the evangelist. Now, I believe that probably there's a lot of abuse of this, a lot of guys out there going in the name of evangelists that are not really God-called, God-gifted evangelists. But I do believe in the, in the gift and in the office of the evangelist. A lot of you folks could look back upon experiences that you've had and with great joy and a, a great spiritual uh, enjoyment, remembering how God ministered to you or spoke to you through the, the office and through the ministry of an evangelist. I'll never forget a young lawyer by the name of Dorothy Mayer my wife will remember Dorothy too. She's a sweetheart, about five foot one, red hair, a lawyer. I never saw her in the courtroom, but I'll guarantee she could hold her own with any judge or any uh, opposing lawyer that's on the face of the earth. I mean, she's just a fireball. One Sunday morning when I was pastoring in Fort Lauderdale, Dorothy came and visited our church. So my wife and I went and visited her in her apartment that next week, and we began to sit down to share with Dorothy. And I, first of all, wanted to know if she was Christian. So I began to ask her the diagnostic questions and she came back immediately with the answer that she was born again. So I asked her, well, Dorothy, man, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. Share with me how that took place. And she said just a couple of weeks ago, right here in my apartment, I was watching television and Billy Graham was preaching in a crusade. And when he offered the invitation, I bowed my knees right here in my own living room and prayed and asked Jesus to come into my heart. Then I began to share with her what she needed to do now in order to grow and to mature in Christ and Later that week, as a matter of fact, that next Sunday, she was baptized. She came into the fellowship of our church. She later began to teach in our children's ministry, joined the choir, and is serving the Lord faithfully in that place. But God used a God-called evangelist to bring Dorothy Mayer into the kingdom of God and later to add her unto that local body of believers 
there in Fort Lauderdale. I believe in the ministry of the evangelists. God has given evangelists, has given those evangelists to the church for the purpose of winning the lost and inspiring us to do the work of evangelists ourselves. And then he mentions the pastors and teachers. This is not two places. These are not two people. These are one. In the original language, the way the, the construction is set grammatically, it seems obvious that this means pastor-teachers, not just some that are pastors and some that are teachers, but all pastors must be teachers. It is one. They are pastor-teachers, not two offices. People ask me sometimes, well, James, has God called you to be a pastor or has he called you to be a teacher? And I say yes. <laughs> Both. God has not called some just to be pastors and some just to be teachers. He's called us to one place, the pastor-teacher. As a matter of fact, the word pastor means a shepherd, like the shepherd of sheep. What was the function of the shepherd? The function of the shepherd was to lead the sheep into the pastures in order that they may feed and that they may be fed, that they may have nourishment, that they may have growth. And so my task as a pastor-teacher has, has been given to the church to lead you and to guide you. Folks, God's given me to you. You say, give him back. <laughs> God has given me to the church. He's given you to me. But the point is he has given pastors, teachers to the church in order to guide and to lead the people of God in the work of the ministry. As a matter of fact, verse 12, Paul goes on and tells why he has given pastor, teachers, why he's given the guides of the church. He says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Huh. God's given me to equip you for the work of the ministry. God's given me to equip you to be ministers. That's right. Now, I'm not trying to get out of work. <laughs> you say, well, that's why we pay you. You know, I mean, you're the minister around here. Wrong. Wrong. Every single one of us are called to be ministers. You say, but God had called me to be a pastor. I didn't say that. I said, God has called you to the ministry. God has called you into the ministry. Here, your call is just as real as my call. It is just as real. Don't ever question that. Don't ever doubt that. When God saved you, he called you to ministry. He calls you a minister of the gospel. My call is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Can you imagine what would take place in this city and in this church if every single one of us who are part of this body of believers got a hold of that, got a grip on that? That it's not just me and Bob and Phil that are the paid ministers of this, this church that are called to the ministry to do the work of the ministry, but that we're called to equip you and that you're called to go and do the work of the ministry. Fort Worth would never be the same. If you went into the workplace tomorrow with the stamp of the call of God upon your life and you understood that God had called you as a minister, whether you wore a collar or not, and that's why I don't wear a collar, that's why we don't wear collars as Baptists, because we are not set apart from you. We are no different from you. We are all equally called into the ministry. If every child of God took that attitude and that approach to the work of God, can you imagine what would take place? If you walked into your workplace tomorrow with the boldness that you expect me to have to witness to people, if you went to school, young people, tomorrow with the boldness that you expect your pastor to have in, in sharing the gospel with lost people, think of the effect in our city. God has given the guides of the church for the equipping of the saints. Very quickly, I want you to notice the growth of the church. Verses 13 and 14 say he's given gifts for ministry. He's given guides to the church, the glorious church, in order to equip the church. And when that happens, when they are exercising their gifts and the guides of the church are equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, you know what the result is going to be? Growth. 
It's going to be growth. It's going to be maturity. You see, the church is a living organism. We are a body. And the characteristic of a healthy living organism is growth. When it stops growing, it starts dying. So verse 14, Paul says, we are no longer to be children, tossed to and fro on every wind of doctrine. He says in verse 13 that we are to grow up and be mature. He speaks of coming to maturity in Christ. See, the characteristic of a glorious church is maturity. Churches that are not unified are churches that are filled with babies. They are. Divided churches are churches that are filled with spiritual babies that have not grown up. They don't have the right behavior. They don't have the right beliefs. They're not exercising their spiritual gifts. They don't understand the function of the guides of the church to equip them for the work of the ministry, and therefore there is no growth in the body. Consequently, they are babies, and they squabble, and they fight, and they pull, and they tug like babies. Not the glorious church, though. Not the unified church. A glorious church that's bringing honor and glory to the name of Jesus is a unified church that is growing in maturity. We are to mature in stature, verse 13. He talks about, until we come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, listen, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We are to be maturing to the stature of Jesus. Do you want to know if you're mature? Don't measure yourself against me. You might win. I couldn't handle it. Just kidding. Don't measure yourself against your pastor if you want to measure your spiritual maturity. Don't measure yourself against your Sunday school teacher or another member of the church. Measure yourself against Jesus if you want to know if you are growing and maturing in Christ. We are to mature to the stature of the fullness of Christ. When people see you, do they see Jesus? We're also to mature in stability, not only in stature, but stability. Verse 14, he says, we are no longer to be children tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine. We are to be grounded. We are to be stable upon the word of God, stable upon the things of God, not children being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Do you know where the cults get their members? They don't cultivate new members, folks. They don't go out and find somebody that's never been in a church before and draw them into their cult. You know where they get their members? From evangelical churches. Babies never mature, never grow, never grow in maturity and stature, never grow in stability. They're like a child tossed on the wind. Every wave of every doctrine that comes along, we're to grow in stability. Third, we're to be mature in speech. Mature in our stature, mature in our stability, but mature in our speech. Verse 15, Paul says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in Christ. You know how you tell a baby? Tell a baby by speech. Goo goo, gaga. So babies talk. You hear that and you say, That's a baby. You know how you tell a baby Christian? By speech. He says, We are to speak the truth in love. Now, Speaking truth without love is brutality, isn't it? Speaking love without truth is hypocrisy. Speaking truth in love is maturity. And that's where God wants us to be. Not brutality, speaking truth with no love in it. Not hypocrisy, speaking love but no truth in it. But maturity, speaking the truth in love. I've known folks that could speak the truth but beat you to death with it. Just kill you with the truth. I mean, just speak truth all day long. 
but no love, beat you to death with it. I've known the other end of the spectrum, those folks that could speak in love, no truth, no conviction of sin, no confrontation of false doctrine, none of that, not understanding what it means to speak the truth in love, just syrup, just honey, just syrup poured. We are to be mature in our speech. We are to speak the truth in, the lo in love. That is maturity. So what about the glorious church? What is the glorious church? What are we supposed to be as the people of God? We are first of all to be unified in the things in which we hold common. That is a right behavior. That's the way all of us are supposed to act. With humility, gentleness, patience, long-suffering. We are to be unified in the right beliefs, those seven foundational beliefs that we hold as the people of God that we cannot give anything on, those seven foundational beliefs. But we are also unified in our diversity, the gifts. We all have gifts. They are all from God, and they are given for service. We must understand that God has given some to guide us, to move us, to grow us up, to teach us as we go out being prepared for the work of the ministry. And then when all of that takes place, this is the exciting part. We begin to grow. We grow in that stature, measuring up to the fullness of Christ. We grow in that stability, no longer children being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And we grow in maturity in our speech, speaking the truth, but doing it in love. Do you get the picture of the glorious church? It's a glorious church. There's nothing sweeter than being part of a moving, living fellowship of believers that's growing in maturity in Christ, that's unified around one common purpose and one common goal, which is winning the world to Jesus. Amen? That's God's will. That's God's desire for us. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you and we thank you for your word, for the way that you teach us. Thank you, Father, for the gifts that you've given us that were not all the same, but you've given the gifts to us in order that you might unify us in diversity as we serve you, as we rally around you, the living Lord Jesus. Father, I thank you for the way you're growing us, not only in numbers, but you're growing us in maturity as we see these baby Christians beginning to speak like mature Christians, no longer speaking the language of a child, but beginning to speak the language of maturity, which is the truth, but always in love, always in love. Thank you, Father, that you're unifying around us around that common goal. We bless you and we praise you for it. Now, Lord, in this time of invitation, we give it all to you. Have your way. You are sovereign. We recognize that. We can do nothing, Lord, that lasts unless it's done through you and it's done by you. So we give this time to you and we praise you for the result in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a hymn.